0: Good afternoon everyone. I need my mic. Let's try that again. Good afternoon everyone. Did y'all have a good lunch? It was good. Hope you all don't fall asleep on me because you know what happens after lunchtime. The brain goes into sleep mode. We're going to start because we have a lot to cover um, and maybe more will be coming. Let's start again with the word of prayer, shall we? Our Father and our God, again, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you. We thank you for the physical food you've blessed us with. And as you continue to work through the presenters, we pray that the spiritual food may be given as well. We thank you so much for those who have turned out for this workshop. And I ask again that you may touch my lips and give me the words to say that will um, enhance understanding in this area and maybe open up some avenues that we can look at as to where we can turn back to your word and your truth. We thank you again, Lord, for this opportunity. In the name of Jesus, your son, we do pray. Amen. How many of you all were not in any of the other two workshops? Okay, so we're going to have to do a little recapping to so kind of get you up to snuff here. And I'm going to do this real quick. In my first session, we talked about some specific psychological theories that has come in and affected us as Christians. One was about the self-esteem, and I talked about how self-esteem is something that's pushed by psychologists but is in contradiction to the Bible because the Bible tells us that we need to deny self and de- esteem others more than self. And I also presented some research that where psychologists are starting to realize that people who have problems, many of them have high self-esteem, problems with hostility, violence. Um, emotional disorders Most of them have, as we're finding out High self-esteem That hasn't reached down to the level of what I call Pop psychology yet But if you're looking at the research area They're starting to show that psych- uh, self-esteem is not turning out to be What we thought it was Then I talked about unconditional love and acceptance Oh, my husband's supposed to be taping me Oh, oh. This is not good yeah, that's true. Recap. Um, unconditional love and acceptance, which well, from the very beginning, I talked about how truth and error are linked together in psychology. And that's why it's hard to distinguish that it's something we need to stay away from. And the Bible shows us how Satan has used this from the beginning of time. When you talk about unconditional love, there is some truth to the fact that God loves us unconditionally. And I mentioned Romans 5, 8, God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing we have to do to obtain God's love. So there is some unconditionality to it. The problem that has come about is that we've taken the humanist's definition of unconditional love, which means don't say anything to me about anything because you're supposed to love me unconditionally and God does too. And as a result, that means don't say anything about how I dress, how I eat, how I worship, because God loves me unconditionally, and you should too. So that's where the danger comes in there. And then I talked about meeting felt needs and the whole seeker-sensitive movement coming from people like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, where the idea is that I'm not going to get people to come into the church who would never come to church unless I minister to their needs which has some truth to it. The problem is they're ministering to needs and then forgetting about the real reason why people are in church. And that comes from, I believe, psychology. Well, I'm not only saying what I believe. If you look at some of these people's books like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, you'll see a lot of psychology weaving in and out of there. And so in meeting people's felt needs, we can sometimes forget that the, the real need is their spiritual needs. And so that's a problem there. And then in the second session, I talked about emotions and how we as Christians should be placing emotions secondarily. But as psychologists, it's a primary thing. I was taught as a psychologist that I should focus on people's feelings when they come in. How do you feel about that? And have them just spend sessions talking about feelings, and that's not according to the Bible. The Bible does acknowledge emotions, but psychology places it too much in the forefront, and we have to be careful with that. And I also talked about therapy. Many Christians now are seeking therapists and counselors And um, I talked about how I used to advertise myself as a Christian psychologist until I thought the Lord started to open up my eyes about this. And I recognized I was using the same psychological theories and just throwing in some scriptures here and there to, to condone that I was a Christian doing Christian therapy. So beware when people are advertising themselves as Christian psychologists and Christian therapists. You have to really measure them against the Bible to see how much they are really using the Bible. Okay, so that's kind of a recap, and for those of you who don't know a little bit about my background, let me repeat that as well. I've been in the field of psychology for 18 years. I taught for seven years, four of those years at Oakwood, four to five years at Oakwood, and then two years at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, and then I've been in private practice for the last 12, 13 years. I'm not in private practice right now because I'm trying to see what the Lord wants me to do, given all these things that he's revealed to me in the last couple of years. I can't continue to do that work. Um, because I'm using these theories of man that's based on things that are not biblical. So I'm in the process of asking the Lord to show me what to do. And some of what I'm going to share this afternoon is some of the things he's brought to me, but there's a long road ahead of me. And many of you all have come to me saying, what do I do? I'm in psychology. I don't have any pat answers for you all. I I wish I did, but you're going to have to bring this before the Lord and say, Lord, what do I do? Some of you are strong enough, some of you are rooted enough in the Bible that you can go through these programs and come out and practice God's way. But I would say that's very few of you. I have to be honest. I was able to get out and unlearn. I'm still unlearning some of the mess that I learned in graduate school, and now I'm learning it God's way. But sometimes we think we're going to do that, and we get in there, and we get caught and don't realize. So, you know, we have to lift up our brothers and sisters who want to help people. We need people to help folks. As I said in my previous sessions, it's not only about telling people, go read the Bible and pray. Some people need a little more hand-holding than that. And we have to use God's way to do that. I recognize we have problems in the church. I'm not one of these see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. We have people dealing with eating disorders. We have people who've been molested. We have people who are molesting people. These are real in our church, but we have to use God's way to deal with this and not the ways of the world. OK, so when we left off on um, the, our last session, I had this slide up. There are new worship styles coming in. There are new programs, there are new ministries, there are new sermons. And my question is, have they been successful? These things that are based on secular psychology. Are they effective? You totally success. There you go. Don't take my workshop from me, OK. <laughs> So this is usually when you ask people how successful their churches and programs are, this is what they tell you. Our churches are growing, one sign of success for them. Our members are so friendly. We have all these programs and ministries, um, our baptisms, we have a lot of baptisms, and we have young people who are there and active. You know, they come to church every Sabbath. This is most of the the, uh, indicators that are used to define the success of a church. Do you think that that's enough? No? Yes or no? Let me see head shake. Do you think that that's enough to define the success of a church? Well, the Lord has led me to this. What about the spiritual power of the church members? Are these psychological, which people don't realize that's what they are, but some of the things we're bringing in based on secular psychology, are they giving our church members more spiritual power? This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, and I kind of skipped ahead in the verse, having a form of godliness, but what? Denying the power thereof from such turn away, In second Timothy. And again, I sometimes refer to the Adventist commentary to get more on some of these texts. The commentators tell us a form of godliness refers to the external characteristics of religion, the baptisms, the number of young people, the friendliness of the church. But the power thereof is that power of God which cooperates with the will of man for the eradication of all sinful tendencies. These are not concerns for the mega churches and some of our Adventist churches following this new style. They don't care about whether or not um, the power of God is cooperating with the will of man to help people get over some of the sinful tendencies in their lives. And so the servant of the Lord tells us, I was shown the churches in different states There is an alarming amount of indifference, pride, love of the world, and cold formality existing among them. Many make high claims of godliness and yet are destitute of self-control. Self is made prominent, which psychology will do. Secular psychology, it's all about taking care of self, esteeming self, getting your needs met, feeling loved unconditionally. What a rebuke to those who have a form of godliness, she says while in their Christian lives they deny the power thereof. And she also tells us the church is very precious in God's sight. He values it, not for its external advantages. Those same success indicators I put up. How many young people? How many baptism, How friendly is your church? How large is your church? That's not how God values it. But for the sincere piety which distinguishes it from the world. He estimates it according to the growth of the members in the knowledge of Christ, according to their progress in spiritual experience. We use that verse a lot. I've heard this verse used a lot. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. We usually use that to say, I can do whatever I want. God knows my heart. That can be good and bad in terms of God knowing my heart, because God knows what my knowledge of Christ is, and how much I'm progressing in spiritual experience. Amen? So we have to be careful when we use that. This is how he estimates the church. So first of all, we have to recognize where we are and what we've done. And Jeremiah says it well when he says, My people have committed two evils. First of all, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And when I think about secular psychology, I think of broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's why people will go to therapy for months and years because they're filling cisterns that are broken and you can never fill it with secular psychology. It may make you feel good, as I tell people, but are you getting better? Some people may argue and say, yes, I'm getting better, but the, tr- the proof is in the pudding. So I wanted to just look at a biblical example for church growth. And the reason I'm doing this is because I'm talking about secular psychology, not in terms of only how it helps us or how it affects us as individuals, but how it's come into the church. The whole church growth movement, those coming from Hybels and Rick Warren and all of them, are not really based, some of them are not based on the Bible. So what can we learn from the beginning and growth of the early church during Pentecost? This was part of the sermon that Peter preached. I don't know if you remember in Acts. I just pulled out some parts. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked, wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. I just pulled out parts of his sermon. And it was interesting she says in Christ's Objects Lessons, the people were made to see themselves as they were, sinful and polluted, and Christ as their friend and redeemer. He wasn't concerned about esteeming their selves. He wasn't concerned about making sure they felt good. His purpose in, in that sermon and acts that brought down the Holy Spirit was, I want them to see what they've done. They crucified this Christ and slain him. And what was their response? Did they say, this man is too hard? He's not making me feel good about myself. He's not fulfilling my needs. He's not loving me unconditionally. These are what all the secular psychologists say we should do to get people in the church. No. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you think that method still can't work today? It can It's just that we lack the faith to believe that. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I've heard people say, well, we have to make this relevant. You know, that was back then. They were they were different than we are now. We can't just tell people how sinful and polluted they are. We can't help people or encourage people to feel convicted or guilty. We'll drive them away from the church. That's because we lack faith. I'll keep repeating that. And um, so how did the church maintain its members and gain new members? Just reading from Acts 2. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They continued in breaking of bread and in prayers. All that believed were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And that's real important because a lot of times people describe the church as saying that everybody brought everything and just divided it. No, they divided it as people had need. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and they praised God and had favor with all the people. I don't even have time to really break that down, but I advise you to go back and study Acts and see what Peter said and, and what, how they responded in the church and to see how we could help our church grow. Listen to this quote. I remember having a discussion with our district superintendent in 2002 about evangelistic methods. That's what I'm getting at here. Secular psychology has come in and has really watered down some of our evangelistic methods, and we don't realize that. I told him that I was going to try a new method that was practically unheard of today in the churches in America. I distinctly remember him pulling closer to hear this new exciting method, which, by the way, many are looking for. I will never forget the look on his face when I whispered, I'm going to go into all the world and preach the gospel and teach people to obey everything that Christ commands, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When I asked him if he had ever heard of this method before, he just smiled. He knew what I was getting back. We need to get back to the scriptures. And this is a burden that I have as I've begun to, to learn more about how secular psychology has affected us. We don't have enough faith at getting back to the scriptures. That's why I like GYC because it pushes the true evangelism as I see. You you're all are going to go out on Sabbath afternoon and knocking on doors. And our churches can grow if we still use that method. Now, I'm not saying nothing's wrong with adding new things. You know, we are admonished somewhere in evangelism. She says we can come up with new methods. But make sure those new methods fit what we're told in God's word. And again, some of you heard this in the previous workshops. Bill Hybels of Willow Creek has now recognized we made a mistake. I've asked this before. How many of you all have heard of Willow Creek? We made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians We should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders instead of depending on the church to feel feed their, their needs. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. So Willow Creek is starting to realize they've made a mistake. And if you read some of Bill Hybel's works, you will see that a lot of the decisions they made, a lot of the evangelism that they carried out in the Willow Creek model was based on psychology. His wife was an avid psychology person. She went through years of therapy and came back to her husband, Bill Hybels, and said, we need to put this therapy, these things I learned in psychology, into practice here at Willow Creek. So they're very steeped. And God will deal with them, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying anything about them because they're following what they know. My concern is when we, as Seventh-day Adventists, begin to bring these same things in, not understanding that we have a bigger, better message. I'll repeat this story the third time, because some of you were not here. The book that I've written, Christians Beware, Dangers of Secular Psychology, I had Thomas Moster, president of the Pacific Union Conference, write the foreword in there. And he was telling us, or he mentions in the book, that he went to seminary And to truncate the story, the Baptist professor came to him afterwards, chairperson of the department, and said, I have all of Ellen White's books. I wish that um, you all have a treasure house here. I'm kind of paraphrasing. I wish that we could use her books and the Bible and recognize that we can deal with practically all emotional problems except for the seriously mental one. Baptist professor said that. But we don't want to believe that, sad to say. I've just started believing it. You know, Ellen White was just somebody I'll pull down steps to Christ, the desire of ages here and there. I didn't think she could help emotional problems. I mean, she's just a, a writer. What does she know? That's, that's what I thought. I'm not being blasphemous. And then as I started to learn more and started to apply her methods, boy, what power there is. I told someone earlier, I don't know if I mentioned this. I had a woman who was born illegitimately, and she was going through seeing counselors for years and years and years because she was the only one in her family that was born illegitimately. And couldn't get resolution of this. You know, she was losing sleep and depressed. You know, I'm this child who's so rejected, the family doesn't love me, and on and on and on. Thank God she came to me when the Lord revealed truth. I took out some information from Desire of Ages in that chapter where Christ is uh, talked about as being illegitimate and the rejection he experienced and gave that to her. She came back the next session and says, problem gone. I says, huh? She says, problem is gone. If I knew my Savior went through this. Now, she was a Christian, so it was a little easier for me to do that. If, she, if I knew my Savior went through this, what do I have to be moaned about anymore? You know? I don't need to see counseling anymore for this issue. If he could deal with it, I could too. Now, if I was doing my typical counseling, I would have made some serious money from this woman. Because I would have just talked to her about her childhood and how bad it must feel to be rejected and, oh, I can't imagine what you've gone through. And I would have had her draw pictures and write stories and read books. But that would not have resolved the issue because I would have been no different than all the other counselors she has been seeing for 10 years. So the books are powerful when we can use them. We're going to talk a little bit more. Now, there is another way. Secular psychology focuses on self in dealing with problems. This is all my own term. Biblical psychology or true psychology focuses on God's way in dealing with problems. And I'm just going to give you some perspectives that I came up with and with some help by reading as well, some other things. The biblical answer for problems, we must ask God to help us look at our lives, our problems our situations from his divine perspective and not from our human perspective. That's hard, but we have to ask him that. We can only learn this by studying and applying his word to our everyday lives. So I just took some examples. I'm just throwing things out for you to think about. If you're dealing with any kind of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, this is one way to use the Bible. Recognize that the psalmist tells us, He, God, healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. And remember what Paul says. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. The woman that I saw that I should say but not destroyed, the woman I saw that I mentioned in my last workshop for about two to three years, it wasn't until I started doing these things with her that she started to get better. She was coming in all the time and we just would pull out Information about sexual abuse, she was molested by many people. This woman, uh, doctors molested her, father molested her, uncles molested her. I mean, the list goes on. And she had been seeing counselors for a long time. But when I started to go to God's word and pulling out texts, and she started to memorize them, and when she would start to think about that, applying it, she told me that's when the healing began. So all of these things I learned in school wasn't helping her, is when I used God's word. Um, Another thing with abuse is that many people who are abused carry a lot of resentment in their hearts. The Bible tells us if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. And with this woman, I talked with her about forgiving these people and recognized, said to her, forgiveness will not come on your own. It's only God's supernatural power that can help you to forgive. It's impossible to forgive someone on my own who's molested me. I can't do that on my own. But with God's help, I can forgive them. So we talked about that. And then I didn't mention this verse to her, but the Bible also tells us, Grudge not once not one against the other, another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. So we have to remember these things. You know, it's interesting. I read that eating disorders has been around since the time of the Romans. Do you know it started then? I thought that was a new disorder because I used to say to my husband, how am I going to help people with eating disorders now that I'm throwing away this psychological goobligog? How am I going to help people? Then I started to find out it's been around during the Roman times. And Paul actually admonished some of these same women who were throwing up, your body is the temple of God. Don't defile it. Now, I'm not saying if I say that to a person who has an eating disorder, next day they're going to stop. But I think if I could bring them through the process of helping them recognize your body is owned by someone other than yourself, yourself, yourself. And this is, again, with Christians. Some, many of y'all are asking, how do we work with non-Christians? I'm just learning that. So, you know, I know there is a way because God says there is. I just have not found the exact key just yet. So right now, all these things I'm talking about is dealing with Christians. However, I've had one or two cases where, through the Holy Spirit, I've led people to see, you need spirituality in your lives. Let's work towards that if you really want resolution. And God has helped them to be open to Christianity, to be open to God. But I was just thought that was interesting that back then Paul told them that. And then coping with difficulties at home and school, it's just simple verses that we take for granted. Cast it all your care upon him because he careth for you. I had a woman who was dealing with stress And I gave her a Bible verse, and she said, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's in Deuteronomy. As thy day, so shall thy strength be. And she says, Dr. Parks, every day I wake up, and when I'm faced with difficulties, I repeat that verse to myself. As thy day, so shall thy strength be. And she said, it helps me make it through this day, and when I get to the next day, it helps me make it through that day. And she says, that verse was a powerful thing for me. Do you see, are you starting to see how we can use the Bible instead of turning to psychology? It takes a lot of work, but it's possible. And then some people are dealing with parents leaving them. The Lord tells us when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. I remember working with a man who used the Bible to help people and I said, this man is so weak. How can you use the Bible to help these deep problems? I mean, I just, Pitied him. I said, poor thing. He needs to go on and get his Ph.D. How can you use the Bible to get help? These I really thought this for years until the Lord again had to open my eyes. And then when I started to apply it, I thought I saw that there is power in the word of God for destructive sexual habits. We know that people who have problems with pornography, masturbation, all of that. It starts with the thoughts. Even psychologists recognize that. They're training. When I used to work with sexual offenders, believe it or not, that's one good thing. We would work with the offenders about changing your thoughts. If you see a little child and you start to feel sexual towards them, work on changing your thoughts. The problem with that method is that I was not able in that center to tell them, use this verse to help you replace those negative thoughts. But that does start in the mind when we have these problems with sexual habits. And then watch what you're putting before your eyes. I'm just pulling out principles in the Bible. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. If you have a problem with pornography, do something with your computer where you won't be exposed to that. Watch the movies that you're watching. Watch what television shows you're watching. Be careful with what you're setting before your eyes. And then if you have had this problem, recognize that God tells us he is faithful and just to forgive us. Do you all see what I'm trying to do with the Bible? And it takes some study on your part. It does not happen overnight. I only heard one amen, so that means the rest of y'all are not seeing it. <laughs> it's a hard thing because, brothers and sisters, this stuff has been ingrained in our brains that we need psychology to help us with these things. It's not true. If there's nothing else you get from this, it's to go away saying, Lord, I need to find another way if you're into this field. Or if you know people who are in that field as well. Then look to his word for examples of people who have experienced difficulties. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you glean principles from these examples for your circumstance or difficulty. I'm going to look at an example of abuse. Read this. To be morally abused is a horrible experience. Yet Daniel suffered such abuse to the extreme when his captors robbed him of his ability to have children by making him a eunuch. Daniel's captors damaged his body, but he did not let them hurt his mind, his spirit. He became mighty in these areas. What worse abuse can someone experience than that? As a man, you could definitely relate to that. Being castrated, taken away from your home and family at the age of 17 or 18, I believe it was. Being castrated, I don't think there's any abuse that can get worse than that. Well, maybe there is, but that's about the worst it can get. But did Daniel bemoan, sit around talking about how he was abused or taken advantage of? No. He depurposed in his heart is what the Bible tells us, that he would not defile himself at the king's table and that purposing in his heart. This is one person, I'm hesitant, but you all can look him up, but you gotta pray. He is a, a, a person who does some training in biblical counsel, counsel, counseling. Bill Gothard. There's some, theological things he needs help with. So I have to be careful in in promoting this because I don't want you to get turned around too much. But he has some good information. I don't know. He's an evangelist? I didn't know that. Okay. Okay. I don't know if I'm being an evangelist, but... Just somebody to, and then the biblical example of rejection and loss. Joseph, it doesn't get any worse than that. People are being mistreated. Paul and Jesus Christ. And dealing with your enemies. David. You know, it's interesting. I have to put this little caveat in it. As I'm reading Spirit of Prophecy in the Bible now, I'm taking it and say, okay, I could use this to help this person, that to help that person. I was reading about Saul. And you know, Saul basically became mad, like a madman. Y'all know that, right? In Patriarchs and Prophets, she says that Saul's fault and character, it started with him loving the approval of men. And then she says it went down and he started to get jealous of David and started to have these things captivate and fascinate his mind so much that he eventually became crazy. I wonder how many people dealing with insanity started out with something small like that and it kind of grew. You know, and I'm wondering when we're working with people, if we could use the Bible to kind of find out. Now, someone asked me earlier about schizophrenia. Um, I'm still learning about that because I, I think with that, if you're truly schizophrenic, you may have to use some of the practical, um, traditional route with medicine. You know, I, I, I'm i still learning how to, to deal with that. Schizophrenia is a, a true brain disorder that there may be some natural things to do to help with it, but I think you need medicine until that time so when i say insanity i'm not saying just use the bible and you could deal with everything sometimes with schizophrenia you need you need the medicine until god shows another way ask god what are the lessons he would like for me to learn about these past or current situations if you're dealing with something possible lessons it'll teach me humility it will give me more compassion for those experiencing problems it will teach me how to be more content i'm talking about people who are going through difficulties It will increase my faith and trust in God, and it will reveal those character traits that I must overcome. Now, I can easily say this, but when you're going through something, and it's only by the grace of God that you're able to sit down and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to learn from this? When we were driving up here, we had a pocket, a packet with $100 in it for change when we were selling our our books, and we lost it. And when you take this method, it kind of works. I says, God, there's a reason we lost that money. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to allow myself to be stressed out over it. There's a reason that we lost this money, and you will reveal it in your time. Just simple things where we can start applying that principle, and it makes all the difference in the world. I haven't thought about that pouch until I'm just mentioning it to you right now. And I'm the kind of person, you can ask my husband, I get easily stressed. But as I'm starting to study this, it's helping me as well to recognize how God has another way. Now, I'm going to get into another area. There are truths within our church that can guard us from embracing, embracing secular psychology. And I'm going to get real um, into our message as Adventists. I cannot end this session without us talking about what we have as Adventists that can prevent us from embracing this message. This comes from testimonies. Some of you may know this quote. Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people separate from the world. By the great cleaver of truth, he has cut them out from the quarry of the world and brought them into connection with himself. He has made them his representatives and has called them to be ambassadors for him in the last work of salvation. Some of you all last night heard um, Israel Ramos, Ramos's presentation about identity. If we remember who we are at Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of these truths of secular psychology we would not embrace. Let's talk about how that could be. The Bible tells us you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises or virtues of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this should start from a child. They should make them, children, acquainted with the great pillars of our faith, the reasons why we are Seventh-day Adventists, Why we are called, as were the children of Israel, to be a peculiar people. These things should be explained to the children in simple language, easy to be understood. And as they grow in years, the lessons imparted should be suited to their increasing capacity until the foundations of truth have been laid broad and deep. Now, I'm not saying to tell your children, you're Seventh-day Adventist, so you're better than Baptists, you're better than Methodists, you're better than Lutherans. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about teaching them what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist and what our calling is. And I have to be honest, I didn't learn this until I was in my 30s. I thought Seventh-day Adventism was just another denomination. And as I started studying, I recognized this is more than just a denomination, it's a movement, So what does this mean if it's a movement? What are we supposed to be doing with it? Moving. Who said that? Amen. We are supposed to be moving. So let's look at some. Go ahead. Moving ahead. That's right. With the Bible. Not with secular psychology. Let's look at some specific things in Seventh-day Adventist. You know, we used to be known as people of the book. And so, as 7 a.m., and as everything that comes our way, we used to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. And if, as a people, we take these psychology theories coming in and compare them to scripture, some of these things that we're embracing, we might not embrace. Satan's deceptions will assume new form. False theories will be presented to God's people. Thus, Satan will try to deceive, if possible, the very elect. Our watchword is to be to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not, that should be. According to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I believe a lot of the theories we talked about, self-esteem, unconditional love, felt needs, all of these are false theories that have come in and been presented to God's people, and we're not comparing them to the law and to the testimony. Then there's the whole sanctuary truth. I'm just starting to learn how powerful the sanctuary truth, how many of you all know how powerful this truth is? How do you think that this can help us as a people guard ourselves against secular psychology? I'm going to ask you. Someone, give me some feedback. How do you think really understanding the sanctuary message can help guard us? Yes, stand up. And then. uh. Yes. Amen. 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 I'll repeat what she said just for the tape. She says, knowing that we have a high priest in heaven advocating for us, he sees everything that's going on, and that should comfort us. I'm kind of rephrasing in all that we're going through. Yes? The sanctuary teaches how the... Start again for me, please, because it's on the tape. The sanctuary teaches how the problem of sin is being solved. Amen. Including guilt and uh, sin as a tyrant or master controlling power. And even the sin inside us. Amen. It's, it's not I, what I want to do, is, but the sin that was in me. Amen. Powerful. Powerful. Yes, we have one more person. Go ahead. Read the Word of God, pray, and do evangelism. And we're learning that. We can learn that through the sanctuary message. Very good. I love this. Y'all are are teaching me some things. Um, I think what has happened, though, is that we've prevented the sanctuary message like over here, not really relevant to our lives. Don't you think so? And I think, I'm not blaming the teachers so much as the leaders, but... We, if we learn how to make this practical, I think this would guard us against a lot of these things that we're taking in. And I, I admonish you, if you don't understand the practicality of the sanctuary message, that you do so. Understanding sin, how God deal with, deal, deals with sin, the vindication of his character. If we really contemplated these things, we wouldn't have time to worry about raising our self-esteem. We wouldn't have time to be running away from pains and trials. We wouldn't be focusing so much on fulfilling our felt needs. Neither would we be trying to make sure that people accept us unconditionally. It's all what our minds are on. And I can't get into this more detail. I wish I could so to make more sense. But I'm just throwing out things for you to think about right now, okay? And I leave it to you to go back and study this and get more of an understanding of it. Then the whole righteousness by faith message. Oh, if we understood that message. I'm just starting to understand it. It is powerful. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of faith by who? By God. When men learn they cannot earn righteousness by their own merit or works, and they look with firm and entire reliance upon Jesus Christ as their only hope, There will not be so much of self and so little of Jesus. So what this is basically saying, secular psychology, again, points us towards self. But if we truly understand what it means to obtain Christ's righteousness, we will not be as focused on self and we be focused more on him. And this is such a deep topic. I can't do it justice because I'm not a a specialist in this area. But I just again, I'm throwing things out for you as Satan seeks to break down the barrier of the soul by tempting us to indulge in sin. We must, by living faith, retain our connection with God and have confidence in his strength to enable us to overcome every besetment. And if we could break this down with people, it would help them in so many ways. Even so, faith, if it had not works, is dead being alone. You have to present both sides of this. It's true that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but the true faith is going to be shown by the life we live. Amen? The fruit of the Spirit cannot be produced by psychological techniques. What are the fruit? I just blanked on them. Help me. Ooh. Um, Love, joy, peace. Exactly. Yes, all of those cannot, there's nothing that psychology can do to help us produce the fruit of the spirit. It is only Christ working within that can help us with our character weaknesses, our marital problems, our family problems, our church problems, etc. Now again, as I said in my previous session, I'm not saying don't seek counsel, brothers and sisters. That's extreme. I'm not saying don't ever seek counsel. My, my admonition, my plea for you is that whoever you seek counseling from, that their base is the Word of God. That's all I'm saying. Because sometimes when things are going wrong in our lives, we need to talk to somebody else sometimes. Don't you agree? That's what God has placed each other on this earth. But we have to be careful the source that the person is using to help us, pointing us to Christ and not to them as the only source. Now, if we practically applied this message, do you think we could retain more youth in the church if we were taught these things and taught our young people how to look to Christ for help? You think that we could practically, not getting up and preaching a dry sermon and and not explaining the details of this, but practically, don't you think we would retain more young people? Don't you think more family and marital issues can be addressed and we could keep new members? And we wouldn't have boring church services either. Because that's the other reason that whole movement has been, I think, taken in, because our church services have become boring. So we, we seek to liven it up with what secular psychology says, and and then we go to the other extreme. Now, I love this quote. Wherever this message, righteousness by faith comes, its fruits are good. A vigor and a vital energy are brought into the church. And where the message is accepted, their hope and courage and faith beam in the countenance of all those who open their eyes to see, their understanding to perceive, and their hearts to receive the great treasure of truth. She says that our churches are dying because we're not preaching this righteousness by faith message. She actually says that. I don't remember what book. And um, I wish I had time to do justice by it today, to really make it real to you. But we just don't have the time. Now, let's look at the spirit of prophecy. I mentioned what that Baptist professor told us. The God's messages of warning, instruction, warning, encouragement through his prophets, today manifested through the life and writings of Ellen G. White. Spirit of prophecy does not equal Ellen White. I want to tell you that. I'm not being blasphemous here. Spirit of prophecy started when? When did the spirit of prophecy start? Moses, even before that. Enoch. He made a prediction and it's quoted in Jude. And I'm blanking on what it was. But he did make a prediction. The second coming of Christ. Christ. Thank you, Pastor. Um, So it started from the beginning of time. Today, that spirit of prophecy is manifested through the life and writings of L.N.G. White. And if we, Pastor Bohr, who is here, he has a wonderful series on Spirit of Prophecy where he supports it right from the Bible. And I would admonish you to look into getting that if you have some questions about who she is and what, what she can do. Now, what counsel does she give that can help churches not turn to the concepts and principles of secular psychology? Just, I wanted to just share some things. In evangelism, she says, when you're, do, when you're doing evangelistic crusades, messages for the children should be held, not merely to educate and entertain them, but that they may be converted. If we exercise faith in God, we shall be enabled to point them to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. She has a lot of counsel. I remember someone telling me that a non-Adventist person was, was asked to come to an Adventist setting and present principles on church growth. He sat up there and he says, I'm not sure why you all have me here. And he held up the book Evangelism. He says, you have everything you need right here. But since you've invited me, I'll present what I have. We just don't believe what she has can help. This is another great tool for evangelism. I have been informed by my guide that not only those who believe the truth practice health reform, but they should also teach it diligently to others, for it will be an agency through which the truth can be presented to the attention of unbelievers. They will reason that if we have such sound ideas in regard to health and temperance, there must be something in our religious belief that is worth investigation. I remember working with a gentleman who had problems. We have 285, which circles the city in Atlanta, and he could not drive. His wife had to drive him to church, I mean, um, to work. He was actually a, um, in, in the military. And we went through. I taught him some principles of health, you know, taught him um, things about getting proper sunshine and the diet, etc. talking about how this can be a door opening. That's what I'm trying to give to you here. He said to me, where did you learn all these things? I says, well, since you've asked, actually, my, my church endorses and preaches, teaches a lot of this to the members. Not all of us follow it, but we teach a lot of this. He says, hmm, tell me a little bit more about your church. He was a Catholic. And I started to share with him some things. He says, um, then I, somehow we got on Daniel. I don't know how. He says, do you have any studies on Daniel? I says, guess what? I do. He says, I'd love to study the book of Daniel based on what you're telling me. And I gave that to him. Now, I don't have any happy ending story that he got baptized, but guess what? Our role is just to plant the seed. But because of that method that I used with him, he was open to to learning other things. The Lord calls upon those connected with our sanitariums, publishing houses, and schools to teach the youth to do evangelistic work, which we know here. Young men should be instructed that they may labor in these cities. They may never be able to present the truth from the desk, but they could go from home to home and point the people to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Just throwing out things that the servant of the Lord has for us. And She even has advice on how to keep new members. We don't have to meet their felt needs all the time, brothers and sisters, to keep them. The new converts will need to be instructed by faithful teachers of God's word that they may increase in a knowledge and love of the truth. They should enter heartily into the work of visiting and holding Bible reading with those newly come to the faith. Again, all of this is right in our books. Those who have newly come to the faith should be patiently and tenderly dealt with. And it is the duty of the older members of the church to devise ways and means to provide help and sympathy and instruction for those who have conscientiously withdrawn from other churches for the truth's sake. She tells us so much. So what counsel does she have for helping us with mental health issues? The health of the mind is to a large degree dependent upon the health of the body, and the health of the body is dependent upon the way the living machinery is treated. Now, I have story upon story since I changed the perspective after working with Dr. Nedley briefly about people that the Lord has allowed me to help with depression and anxiety just using the eight laws of health. Simple. Now, when they're really, really severe, some of them, they did have to start out with medicine because I didn't have an inpatient setting. But as they learned the laws of health, the medicine decreased, decreased, decreased. It can be done. She tells us it is the duty of every person for his own sake and for the sake of humanity to inform himself in regard to the laws of life and conscientiously to obey them. They, meaning all of us, should study the influence of the mind upon the body and of the body upon the mind and the laws by which they are governed. Again, just counsel from the spirit of prophecy. If our brains are not clear, we may know that we have been transgressing some of nature's laws. When my brain is confused, read that with me, I know that I have been making some mistake in my diet. She says, when my brain is confused, I've been making some mistake in my diet. And I can tell you story upon story with people with whom I worked where I started to help them change their diet and their brain and minds became much clearer. Anything that hinders the action, active motion of the living machinery affects the brain very directly and from the light given me sugar when largely used is more injurious than meat. I can tell you a lot of stories about how sugar has an impact on people's emotional functioning. But again, I'm just giving you some tidbits from Spirit of Prophecy. The brain is the citadel of the being. Wrong physical habits affect the brain. Unless the youth are versed in the science of how to care for the body as well as for the mind, they will not be successful students. Study is not the principal cause of the breakdown of the mental powers. The main cause is improper diet, irregular meals, a lack of physical exercise and careless inattention in other respect to the laws of health. I've worked on colleges, college campuses. Kids are committing, trying to commit suicide. Some of them are successful. Some of them are putting, being put into psychiatric hospitals. And most of the time what we focused on was, oh, they're spending too much time in the books. They're studying too much. If I only knew back then what I know now, I would start assessing, what's your diet like? How regularly are you eating meals, your meals? When do they go to bed? What kind of exercise do they have? And careless inattention. All of these are important concepts that can help many people. Not only will the organs of the body be strengthened by exercise, but the mind will acquire strength and knowledge through the action of these organs. Just, again... And then there's the thoughts. The thoughts must be trained. Gird up the Lloyds of the mind that it shall work in the right direction. Every day the thoughts should be trained and kept to the point as accomplished to the pole. You know, I'm doing something now. I'm going through Spirit of Prophecy and I'm thinking about all the cases that I worked through. And I'm trying to find things in her writing that I feel might have helped me with some of these cases where I use secular psychology. It's a tedious process. But I've come up with some wonderful things that, that's all in there, and I'm so excited. So as I'm gathering this, I'm saying, okay, Lord, you open the door as to when and where I can start using this. I mean, I do seminars, and sometimes I meet with people individually and all of that. But my dream and goal is to have a center where people come, can come in knowing that they're going to be Helped in another way and not the typical secular psychology way sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. I thought this was powerful. Some of y'all might have known this nine tenths of the disease from which men suffer have their foundation where in the mind that's 90% of diseases people suffer from. The religion of Christ, so far from being the cause of insanity, is one of the most effectual remedies, for it is a potent soother of the nerves. And the reason she says this, earlier in another workshop I said, when you go to the mental institutions, I've worked in one for six months. The majority of the people there were there because of a misunderstanding of religion that had drove them crazy. In one of the books, I believe it's Great Controversy, she says the idea that um, You will be tormented in the flames of hell forever and ever have driven many people to insanity. And some of the people that I spoke to, they had so many distorted views about religion. But she says, far from being the cause of insanity, the religion of Christ, not these false ideas, is one of the most effectual remedies. And that's what we need to teach these individuals if we get a chance. What does she offer to help us with personal difficulties and problems? Overcoming worry. The only way to avoid worry is to take every trouble to Christ. Let us cultivate cheerfulness of spirit. And then you've heard this one. Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. Those who accept the principle of making the service of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a clear path before their feet. And then fear, coping with fear. Only the sense of God's presence can banish the fear that would make life a burden. Let him fix in his memory the promise, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Um, I'm going to move on here. Coping with rejection. I thought this was so touching when I read this. She wrote this to a boy who was fostered. Uh, We would call it a foster child right now. Oh, this is a cold and selfish world. Your relatives who should have loved and befriended you for your parents' sake, if not your own, have shut themselves up in their selfishness and have no special interest for you. But God will be nearer and dearer to you than any of your earthly relatives can be. He will be your friend and will never leave you. He is a father to the fatherless. His friendship will prove sweet peace to you and will help you to bear your great loss with fortitude. Seek to make God your father, and you will never want a friend. You will be exposed to trials, yet be steadfast. There's nothing new under the sun. We have an answer for everything. In this letter, she wrote to the person who was orphaned, as she called them at that time. I'm, thought, I'm sure that it lifted his spirit, and many times when he was down, he could pick it up and read it. And then overcoming destructive habits. The the tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision of choice. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome their evil propensities. They do not yield the will to God. They do not choose to serve him. And then she says, you will be in constant peril until you understand the true force of the will. You may believe and promise all things, but your promises or your faith are of no value until you put your will on the side of faith and action. If you fight the fight of faith with all your power, you will conquer. I mean, we could go on and on, but the spirit of prophecy has, that's why the Baptist professor said to Elder Thomas Mostart, if we would just apply these books, many of the problems we're dealing with would be dealt with. Now, another thing about the Adventist church understanding the message there is we need to understand the controversy between Christ and Satan. The battle of the the controversy occurs mostly where? I mean, it's occurring in the world, too. We see the things that are happening. And if we don't guard the philosophies we use to help our minds, we got to be careful because when the controversy is ended, we might make some choices and end up on the wrong side. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Because if the battle is in the mind and psychology deals with the mind, secular psychology, I have to keep saying that, and we're turning to secular psychology and dealing with the mind, when the controversy ends, what, what side will we go on? Let me throw this out, too. Some of y'all have been asking, what should you do with your psychology degree? There are some great, there are other areas in psychology you can go with. My, my, my husband has a friend, he's a forensic psychologist, and they do a lot of things in helping identify if, um, witnesses are giving the right testimonies and all of that. There's also neuropsychology that studies the brain. There are many areas in psychology you can go into that doesn't violate biblical principles. Everybody wants to counsel people, but we need some evidence in these other areas too. So that's something to think about as well, if you're thinking about going in psychology. We are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. This part of the great controversy. People are looking on. The universe is looking on. And she comments on this. We are a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The whole universe is looking with inexpressible interest to see the closing work of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. At such a time as this, what could be of any worth to us now? Self-esteem, felt needs, unconditional love except to be found loyal and true to the God of heaven. Understanding this great controversy may take our focus away from some of these things. And then she tells us her desire of ages. When we think about that controversy, the very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. We're getting deviated away from this, brothers and sisters, with this secular psychology focus, but we're forgetting why we were placed on this earth. Part of it is to vindicate God's character. Have you all ever heard that before? Amen. Some of us have never heard that. We need to study that more and see what is involved with that. And then understanding what will occur at the end of time. We know there's a time coming when we're going to have to make some choices about whether we're going to follow man or God, right? Right? If we're following man now with all this wisdom from psychology, who's to say that at that end time when, when the, the government or the law says you have to do, oh, how are we gonna just automatically switch over now and start following God? Is that gonna happen? It's a dangerous thing. We need to think about this. Now if we get in the habit of having men, psychologists, solve our problems, what will be built in our characters? Dependence on whom? On man. And the devil has set every agency in operation to get us into that place where whatever our problem is, whether it's a financial problem, a health problem, an emotional problem, a happiness problem, a religious problem, whatever it is, that there's some man or combination of men that can solve it for us. Secular psychology can get us to think that, that man will solve our problems. But true biblical psychology will not do that. And then I'm going to end with this quote and we'll take some questions for five minutes. Ooh, not really five minutes because I have to get ready. Two minutes. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This is how we fight this, brothers and sisters. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. That's the only way we can fight the wiles of the enemy. Is if we put on that whole armor. This was just thoughts that came to my mind. I can't just present a problem of how secular psychology has come in and not give you something to look and say there is some hope. I mean, I can't just take things away and not give you something, right? That'd be kind of hopeless. You walk out here hopeless. Hopefully this has given us some perspective as to where we can go. I pray that has happened. Questions? Yes? secular Secular psychology is anything that's based on not other than the Bible. Freud? From Rogers, Maslow, all of them. The Excuse me? Just just the works that they produce. Yeah, right. Yes. Any other questions? Yes. What about in some the way Day? David- <laughs> it might not be. <laughs> um, but doesn't he usually end them with turning to the Lord? Well, yeah. I thought so. But the Lord is going to take care of the enemies, but Lord, do this and do this. Yeah. You might not want to read that. Lord, don't have to God, right. Yes, any other questions? All right. Oh, yes, go ahead. I don't know. I don't know if that can be done. That's the bottom line conclusion that I've reached. That's kind of asking, to me, no offense, but that's kind of asking, how could we mix common fire and sacred fire together? I don't see how it can be blended. People are doing it, but I have a question about that. I really do. Yes? I agree with you with the value. No, I don't know any, because I've been through all of them. I used to use all of them. Even, even the, the, the self-professed Christian psychologists. Were you in my last workshop? No, I wasn't. Okay. Um, in there, I talked about how people who call themselves Christian psychologists, typically what they do is take psychology's eyes and then examine the scripture to fit what, what psychology says. I used to do that all the time, and I advertised myself as a Christian psychologist. Okay, so people like Larry Crabb, Henry Cloud, John I have big problems with them. I'll have, I'll have flaws. I'm not saying you can't get anything from them, but as you're reading them, you have to recognize they're not biblically based. They use the scriptures, but they're not, that, their basis is not the Bible. Their basis is psychology, and then they sprinkle some Bible in there. But they have, there's some good things you could pull from that, but you've got to be really careful. You sure do. That's a good word. You have a really strong filter. I'm not saying don't ever read them because that's kind of extreme. I don't read them anymore because I'm at a different place. But if you are, use the strong filters. Yes. Is the book's uh, Mind, Character, Personality by NYT Good filter? Oh, very good. The pastor just mentioned that. The book Mind, Character, and Personality. Very good filter for this. Very, very good. Okay, I'm going to have to end because Dr. Nedley has to set up. Come by our booths. We have some DVDs and books if you want. Be in good health and... We could share that with you. And, and God bless each of you. It's called Be in Good Health. Be in Good Health. Oh, um, yeah, I'm just going to go on. Thank you. Well, my husband just mentioned prayer. I will because some we've presented some heavy information. Let's just pray briefly. Father and God, we thank you so much for this information. Lord, I don't have all the answers, you know, and I've thrown out some things that have caused some to disagree and others to now be questioning. I just pray that you may help us to not look to myself or other men or women to answer their questions, but to go to you, to open the books and to learn what principles they can pull out. And for those in the field, I just ask that you may lead them and direct them into the way that you would have them to go. Thank you again for this privilege of prayer. In the name of Jesus, your son, we do pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for G.Y.C., Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about G.Y.C., please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.